Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. This is a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of our namesake here at the Institute, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And today, my conversation partner is a very dear friend and admired colleague, not to mention a member of the founding board of governors for this institute, uh, the Reverend Dr. Honorable Susan D. Johnson Cook. Dr. Cook has been a presidential advisor, pastor, theologian, author, activist, and academic. Uh, she is today founding chair of the Global Black Women's Chamber of Commerce. And as I said, most importantly to us here at the Institute, she is a member of our Board of Governors. So she is an important decision maker here. And I know you'll get a lot out of our conversation today as we talk about her personal background and then what she knows of the black church she grew up in in Harlem and the same community that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have been introduced to when he was in the U.S. Uh, during his time as a fellow at Union Theological Seminary with which Dr. Cook has a close association herself. So here's my conversation with Susan D. Johnson Cook. Madam Ambassador, the Reverend Dr. Honorable Susan D. Johnson Cook, I know you in so many modalities, including as my dear friend and sister in Christ. You have such a story to tell, and I like to begin just by introducing you to the folks who are listening in to this podcast. Do you mind telling us your own story? I know you weren't born an ordained minister or a U.S. ambassador. You have a life before that. Can you take us back in time? Oh, quite a life. Thank you for having me on this wonderful conversation, with this wonderful conversation. You know, you certainly have been an inspiration to me, and I certainly am so excited for the listening audience uh, that we can just grow together. You know, my life began in Harlem, New York. I'm a native New Yorker. Um, in the late 50s, uh, my parents were Southerners. They were born in the Deep South. My mother, North Carolina, my father, Virginia, and life was no crystal stair for them. In fact, they were sharecroppers in this generation. But for whatever reason, they both had vision and destiny. And they knew that the fields uh, and working for someone else with hard labor was not their destiny. And they made it out of the fields. My mother became a school teacher and my father became one of the first black trolley men in New York City, which is now mass transit. And then he became a motorman. And so, you know, they came and they met on their first day in New York City. And so sort of destined that they were supposed to meet each other and they had a real partnership um, and a vision for whole whole living family living um, just good clean living business they became entrepreneurs so both of them worked as civil servants by day and they worked uh, building a business together at night and it is still now the longest running black family-owned business now in New York City it used to be just the Bronx New York it's now in its 59th year and so they were visionaries they were partners they were 
really lovers in the sense that we really mean the word love. They loved one another, they loved God, they loved their family. And so I was raised in a household that was Christian. Both of them were Christians and we worshiped in churches, uh, black churches. Uh, my mother was Presbyterian, my dad was Baptist, and we got the benefit of both. It wasn't a split household, it was a double duty household where we got double anointing and double love. And that's really what the black church was for us, that it was the place of love. We knew we were gonna be hugged. We knew we were gonna be affirmed, encouraged. And so their arrival into New York City, and then my birth and my brother's birth in the 60s, you know, there was really the beginning of not only what we call the black migration with Southerners moving north, but it was also the rise of the black middle class. So people who were just maybe in the fields or people who were um, employed as teachers and motormen, uh, which is the entry level to, to middle class, were able to really raise their game up their game and they were able to do more. And so for African-Americans, the, the, you know, the ways out of poverty were entrepreneurship, home ownership and land own ownership. And so they came from where they had land and they bought a home and they also built a business. So it set us, uh, by the time I got to um, junior high school, which was the 1969, and I, it set us up as really kind of well on our way. Um, but everywhere we lived, whether it was in the walk-up tenement before we were able to buy the home or whether it was in the home, we were always uh, surrounded by love. You know, there were crises because races were coming together. Uh, you know, it wasn't like the Little Rock Nine in the South where, you know, it was the first day for black kids to go to school. But we were integrating communities up north. Um, and so... It was, it was so important to have these homes and these families already in place and stable so that if and when uh, racism and sexism and classism smacked us in the face, we were able to come back to a home and a community. So when you hear the African proverb, and you know Hillary Clinton wrote about it, but it's an African proverb that says it takes a village to raise a child, it is really um, important to have a village. And so I had several, I had a church, I had church villages with both mm. of my parents' churches, each of my parents' churches. I had school villages where I went to school and where my mother taught school um, in Harlem with a group of wonderful Jewish teachers. And so we really saw the black Jewish relationship develop. Um, and, you know, I had villages and playmates, you know, in this new neighborhood that we were integrating, where literally to our left were the Tenenzellas, an Italian family who made lasagna from scratch. Mm. And, and two doors down were the Kamashitis, which was the first black Asian couple I had ever seen. Um, and then next door to them were the Roddies, which was the first black white couple I had ever seen. So we really were born into this diversity across the street in front of me. My playmates were from, their families were from Jamaica. So it was the first Caribbean families I knew. And so we really, um, you know, they say New York is the melting pot. We were in the pot, you know, we were part mm -hmm. of it too. And so I am a woman who, I, I call myself a paella, since we have such a Latin influence now in, nice. in the city. And so I'm a paella, I'm a pastor, I'm an author, I'm an 
entrepreneur, I'm a leading lady, and I'm an amazing ambassador. So that's well, what I say. I'm a blend. <laughs> now, now when I greet you, I have a new greeting. I can say, mi, mi paella preciosa. Now, also, this explains why you are the consummate diplomat. So take us through that trajectory. I know your family's story well enough to know that education was a very big part of your formation. Take us through your educational career and then into your professional career. Yeah, fortunately, I was not a first-generation college entrant, which which made life so sweet because my mother had gone to a historically black college in North Carolina, and her mother had gone to college. So, you know, her mother was just one generation away from slavery. So, you know, education was key. There was, once someone enters that realm, there is no turning back. And so two things happened. One was my mother went to back south every year and sent us back south every summer. And what was important was not only do we make it, but we make sure everybody else makes it who wants to. And Mm -hmm. so she got all of her cousins out of the fields in a one-room schoolhouse, and they went to high school, and many of them went to college. And so my mother was instrumental in education and upward mobility. She was like, you know, we don't sit around. We don't wait for someone to give us a handout we know how to do it. So the whole entrepreneurial mindset was really, really, really important in our family, education. So when you live in an educator's household, education is always going to be part of the conversation, no matter what the headline is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> come back to Where did he go to school? Or where did she go to school? Did you hear her break those verbs around the dinner table? You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was always a spelling bee or a grammatical exercise. So I could not <laughs> let the family down. But even in our churches, because you had this rising black middle class, we were in church with the first black judges and the first black lawyers and the first black doctors. And so they were in higher education and in graduate programs. And so they would sit with us in the pews as little children. And it wasn't just gaga goo goo. They were like, where are you going to school when you graduate? And I'm like, I just learned how to be Dr. Seuss. They were like, okay, but where are you going to college? What what are you thinking about? Ah. For us, we had an accelerated um, appreciation and really love. We, We knew we were going to college. It was just a matter of when and where, and we knew we were going away. So it was it wasn't going to be like uh-huh. staying in the neighborhood. You going away? Pack your bags. And so it was a rich, rich, rich upbringing. But education was key, and so it's in my blood. And I make sure that every every aspect of my life, whether I'm doing business, whether I'm leading a Black Women's Chamber of Commerce, whether I'm in the church, that there's an educational component. How are we growing intellectually? How are we growing mentally? And then how do we give back once we receive? It's that principle of Jesus, you know, go into the world, but don't go out blindly. Go and teach what I've taught you. And so there's this multiplication effect that happens when you're around people who are strivers for education. And... Your alma maters, by now I should know your CV well enough to rehearse them, but I just quite can't. (laughs) So my freshman year, I went to Fisk University, a historically black college in Nashville, Tennessee. 
And so even though I did not graduate with my class, I am still best friends with my class. So I'm considered an alum of a historically black college, Fisk University. I would be the class of 77. But I left there. My father was very ill at the end of my freshman year. And I came back mm. north uh, to Boston's Emerson College in Boston, where I majored in mass communications. Again, that's speaking. And I minored in theater and speech. And so I knew no I was- No kidding. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> You've carried I, those skills all through your life. No, I'm afraid to speak. I'm a shy introvert. You know that. Mm, um, sure. And so it was there that I remember being in a course with Dr. Francis Lashoto. And I'll finish answering the rest of my education. But Francis Lashoto was the, known nationally for being the best oral interpretation teacher in the country. And oral interpretation is where you are all of the characters in a scene of a play and you have to convince people by your speaking and by your intonation and by your all of that that you are these three or four different characters and i remember and my closing project was a scene from a raisin in the sun lorraine hansberry's famous a raisin oh in the my sun. And Walter has just lost the money and his sister Benita is telling mom and mama is saying like kind of what have you done or everything we worked for you kind of gambled away. Mm -hmm. And I was all three of those characters. And when I finished, um, Dr. Lashoto stood up and the class stood up and I said, oh, my gosh, I've, I, something's happening here. She said I was mesmerized. And so for me, that was just like, oh, my gosh, I have found my voice and how I want to use it. I knew I wanted to make my living speaking, but I wasn't sure how it was going to manifest. So after mm -hmm. Emerson, I went to Teachers College, Columbia University. Again, when you are the child of an educator and one from the South, they want you to get the stable degree. So it wasn't get your graduate degree in drama because Hollywood may not be able to support you, but you can always teach. And so it was always the fallback. And so I went to there, I got my master's at 20. Uh, finished high school at 16, finished college at 19. So by 20, I still had a couple of years. My friends were just kind of getting to their junior or senior year. And it allowed me to do some creative things. So I toured with a musical theater company. And then I got called to ministry. I've worked in television and I got called in ministry while I was in television. And so I came back and attended Union Theological Seminary, Howard Divinity School, and then I attended and finished my doctorate at United Theological Seminary in Dayton. So I've been in school a little while. <laughs> Just a little, a little while. while. And, yeah. uh, and I know you were, you were, uh, you made your mark even in those institutions, of course, for us here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. That union just flashes with a red revolving light uh, strobe because, of course, there's the connection with Bonhoeffer himself. I mean, most yes. of our listeners will know that Union is the repository of his papers while he was here in the United States, 1930-31, uh, and then again in 39, doing his work at uh, your alma mater, Union Theological Seminary. And I'd like to ask you about that. Thank you, by the way, for that tour de force uh, through your life. I, I, I don't mind telling you, you were giving me Holy Ghost goosebumps just <laughs> on that trajectory. I mean, to take us from the fields in North Carolina to 
of course, I gave a more formal introduction to you before we got chatting here, but uh, to the White House, not once, uh, but uh, twice, right? Tw yeah. Two or three twice. times. Yeah, it was uh, the Clinton administration for five years, um, five, seven years actually of his administration. And then I was in the Obama administration, which you were extremely a blessing to my life uh, for four years. So I've been in Washington a little while, you know, close to 10 years plus. Um, and, and and what I didn't mention was that in your second round with the Obama administration as U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, you had all at that time 199 recognized countries in your portfolio, the only diplomatic portfolio to have virtually every nation on earth in its portfolio. So you you. You, you got around, sister. I got around. I was on a plane. People used to say, where do you live? I used to say either Amtrak or in a plane. <laughs> you know, I had an address <laughs> where my mail went, but I really got to open it. Um, but yeah, it was quite a, quite an expansive, um, you know, per portfolio. Uh, but you would ask me kind of like, how did I begin as a diplomat? And I think it really began when I was in uh, Riverdale Country School, uh, predominantly upper class, middle class, Jewish school. Uh, the Kennedys had gone there. A lot of diplomatic children had gone there historically. Um, and my parents, we were living on the Grand Concourse, so we still kept our black culture. But every day I went into this really, really ritzy <laughs> campus. Um, we're talking yeah, about New York, of course. New, we're New back York, in yeah, New York, Manhattan. Manhattan. And so it's, you know, the campus was as large as many college campuses, you know, so it was very well laid out by the river. It was beautiful. But in 10th grade, the children, you were supposed to take a, a foreign language um, and the children who studied French went to France and the children who studied Spanish went to Spain. And at 14, I went abroad and became bilingual. And I think that was the seed that was planted in my spirit um, in terms of the world is your stage. Um, you know, you can't go back to the corner of 165th Street and the Grand Concourse and just jump double dutch. You know, it's that mm -hmm. and get my passport and, you know, get on the plane. And my parents didn't even have their own passports at that time, which was so significant. They were like, we trust you. We've raised you and we want you to see all that we could not see. Mm -hmm. And so they trusted me and entrusted me to be able to kind of have the world as my stage. What a gift. What a gift. Well, I want to take you to one corner of your life experience and your service to God, mm -hmm. to humanity, to our country, to the world. And that was, uh, and that is your, your ministry corner. Mm -hmm. You are an ordained minister. Uh, you broke some ceilings, mm -hmm. even in that uh, role, uh, including uh, serving as uh, the first chief executive of the Hampton Ministers, uh, was it Association Network? Hampton I'm, Ministers Conference, yeah. Conference, I'm sorry, conference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I should know, as a Methodist, everything's a conference <laughs> in our world. Exactly. But uh, the Hampton Ministers, you were also uh, senior chaplain. Uh, of uh, NYPD, New York Police Department, including uh, on 9-11. Yeah, you were a pastor. 
Wow. Yeah, yeah. How many years? Twenty-one uh, years. Twenty-one years. Twenty-one years as a police chaplain, and I know that for a fact because I've seen your badge. <laughs> uh, that handsome badge uh, that NYPD officers carry. Uh, you've also served as a pastor in more than one pulpit. Yes. So let's go to your life as a minister, uh, if, if, if we may, with you, and take you to a, an important place of service. You were the one who escorted me to Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, which of course is a critical marker on Bonhoeffer's timeline. I've made the argument that without Bonhoeffer's encounter in Harlem with the black church, we would not know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We would not know that name. He would not have made the mark on history, on the world, on the church, in theology, moral philosophy, ethics. We would not know him as a courageous martyr, uh, as a resistor of Adolf Hitler, the Third Reich, and all the rest of it. We would not know any of that had it not been for uh, a, 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 a predecessor of yours at Union, uh, Albert Frank Fisher, who was a colleague, a fellow fellow of Bonhoeffer's uh, at uh, Union, who would take him to visit Abyssinian in the same way you took me to visit Abyssinian Baptist in Harlem. Can we talk about the black church in Harlem and how you know it? Uh, what the nature of the black church in Harlem is, and and maybe take us back in time a little bit to what Bonhoeffer might have encountered in his day, going to Abyssinian, sitting under the preaching of Adam Clayton Powell. What would he have heard? What would he have experienced? Why was this so revolutionary for him? It was. It changed his life the trajectory of his ministry, it took him back to Germany to face martyrdom and to become the Bonhoeffer we know today. How do you see all of that? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I'm starting this year because this past week, uh, Cicely Tyson was eulogized at Abyssinian Baptist Church. Oh, and, is that right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's one of the few churches that were open for, fu for funerals, but because of her significance, um, and that church's significance, uh, she was at, she asked to be brought back to Abyssinian. So I think it's, you know, it is the historic place. Um, and, and, you know, so Abyssinian was just like the place that we all kind of revered and honored. It, Adam Clayton Powell was larger than a personality. He was a big personality. And, and he was the first who really had the intersection of faith and politics and economics. He was the first black person to be a congressman and a pastor and the head of the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. So he had power, significant power. And so he faced racism, of course, towards the end because he had so much power. He had amassed the major chairmanship that everybody really wants. 
Um, and he was good. I just learned this past week for Black History Month, he was the only representative to get all 800 of his bills passed while he was mm -hmm. in office. So just hearing that, that's amazing, uh, black or white. So Abyssinian for me, the first time I was there was um, when they had what they call freedom schools. It was the same year as the March on Washington, Dr. Martin Luther King and my parents and the Jewish teachers that work with them and their friends rode buses down to Washington by the hundreds of thousands. And so the children, we I was five or six, we were too small to really be able to endure that day. So we were in Abyssinian Baptist Church's um, downstairs fellowship hall. And there was a big screen TV. It was the first time I had seen a TV larger than nine inches. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, we watched as people, it was black and white, as people got off the buses and we learned the songs of the civil rights movement. We learned why our parents were away from us that day. And of course, we tried to see if we would see them in the crowd as they were getting off the buses. But it was so amazing because that I can go back to it just like like yesterday, I can see myself sitting in, in the, what they call Indian style with your legs crossed on, and looking up with amazement and singing these songs. So that was my first introduction to Abyssinian. The next was when Dr. Adam Clay Powell died and the lines were around the, the avenues. Uh, more than anyone I've seen ever, more than the lines that you see gather at the Capitol when a, when a person dies, uh, a representative dies, this was historic and we waited in line and nobody complained. And it was just to walk by the casket because it's something about like being in the shadow of greatness, um, you know? And so whenever we could go hear a sermon, when we weren't at our own family churches, you know, he was the personality, he was the draw, he was um, a liberator who really didn't take um, no for an answer. So his whole thing was keep the faith, you know, and basically he would every now and then say, you know, we're not gonna take this damn stuff anymore. And so he commanded the headlines and the attention and the pulse of the people. So I would believe now, fast forward, uh, Bonhoeffer would just say, wow, they have kept the faith, you know, and they have, you know, they're finishing the race with grace and gravitas, and they are continuing this social justice. Before we had the term social justice, that was spewing out of the Abyssinian pews and pulpit. So I could see Bonhoeffer being attracted to it because he was revolutionary, you know, before they had the name for who he was or how they couldn't define him. And I think the key word was he was defiant against evil. And I think that's what happened in the pulpit of Abyssinian. There was this defiance against evil, evil structures, evil systems, evil done blatantly and openly to people who were marginalized. So I could see the attraction and I don't think it's changed at all one bit. So uh, I'm just thinking you knew Abyssinian up close and personal during a critical era uh, in both U.S. and world history. Uh, mm. and, and you knew uh, this pastor, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., and I think about his namesake, Father Adam Clayton Powell Sr., yes. whom, uh, of course, Bunhofer knew during another critical period— 
and 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 you gave us that continuation, that uninterrupted heritage in that church, because of course during Bunhofer's time, there the KKK was uh, really at its zenith uh, yep. in the 1920s and 30s, mm -hmm. and you had the lynchings. Uh, in the South, of course, they would continue well into uh, contemporary times. But the the Powell um, courage in that in those two periods of time, from the twenties and thirties into the fifties, sixties, seventies, even I can't remember when. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. would have died. You were referring to his funeral, I think, or or the father's funeral. Which one I were we talking junior, about? Junior, because I didn't the know junior. the father. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, when, when, did, when did Junior die? You know, I, I was trying to Google the year. Um, 80s? 1980s? In the 80s? Yeah. Around okay. The 80s. I was young. I was young. So we're, we're really talking about a span of more than half a century. That these that the Powells were 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 leading the epicenter of Black church life in Harlem and by extension, really well beyond Harlem, uh, throughout the country and even around the world. Both men, both Powells, were known around the world for their leadership. So here comes this German. Uh, First time around, now, now, now I'm going to lose my quiz points because I think he would have landed there in 1930. So in 1930, he meets Frank Fisher, uh, one of only two black scholars at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, Frank Fisher takes him to Abyssinian where he becomes fully fully involved in the life of that church, and he starts writing home. And he complains first about his white cohorts who are all too happy to engage in meaningless uh, small talk, but that, in his words, he uses the term, the archaic uh, anachronistic term, Negro, but he says the Negro, his Negro interlocutors are fascinating and interesting, and he he submerges in, into black life in Harlem. Can you give us a little insight on how how the folks at Abyssinian may have seen this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very white German who who comes into their midst, and he seems to have been received from what he writes from the photos, uh, from uh, his eventual love of black gospel, jazz, uh, the dear friendships he visits in their homes, on and on it goes. It seems like they very warmly received him. Would that be typical? 
Well, let me let me um also share. Uh, Reverend Adam McClay Powell Jr. died in 1972. I thought it was 72. Okay, 72. okay, it was off there yeah. by a decade. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I was in junior high school. I knew I was young, um, and so 72. So you know, I you know Abyssinian. I can't speak for them. I've never been a member, but they have been a world class church. You know, um, tourists still flock there by the hundreds when we're in service again. But it's been a historic, almost like a museum because the history there is so rich. So I don't feel, you know, I don't think they would be surprised. And, and also remember before Harlem was predominantly black, it was predominantly white, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it was the first urban center. And then as the suburbs were created, many of the whites moved to the suburbs and then the African-Americans moved in. And so, you know, there's a history of not a monolithic black person and certainly not a, a monolithic kind of church experience. Um, so I'm, they're used to visitors. They have been. And so I think he would have been welcomed as a parishioner who's there to worship with them. The one thing about Christ that we all know that we have a culture, a black culture, um, but in Christ there is no East nor West. So mm-hmm. the question would have really been how much did he feel like he was in the flow and apparently he did because he wrote about how significant it was in terms of his transformation. So there's something about spirit. You know, when Elizabeth and Mary are both pregnant and and uh, Mary goes up to the hill to visit her cousin Elizabeth, they don't both know yet that they're both pregnant. But then when they walk in the room, the babes leap mm. within each of their wombs. And I think that that's what happens with spirit, you know, um, it's not what's on the outside. In fact, I believe God talks about that in date today. But you know that man sees what's on the outside, but God sees what's on the heart. And I think that that's what happens in worship. Like everyone says, we're in here to give God the praise. And so, however you come, whatever color you come, uh, class you come, this is the one safe space where you can be received um, authentically. Well, at a time when I'm sure many, many white churches would not have uh, warmly received a black visitor, it, it appears that was the diametric opposite at Abyssinian, and Bonhoeffer was warmly welcomed, so much so that it was under the preaching of uh, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. that he really experienced what can only be described as a true conversion to Christ and would later write that the only place you could find true Christianity and hear the true gospel preached was in the black churches in the United States. And he had a whole theological argument for that, but mostly it was a case like John Wesley of his heart being warmed and in that passionate worship in that sanctuary that you took me to, and I'll and I will be forever grateful to you, my dear sister, for taking me to that sanctuary because it was in those pews that Bonhoeffer's heart was uh, warmed and the fires of faith were fanned and his very consequential decision was made to return to Germany and suffer with his people. And and uh, 
the way he described that was because of what he had seen in the black church, how the black church suffered with its people. He yeah, was now called to suffer with his own people. Yeah, exactly. I think that that was the um, underlying theme that united his heart with theirs. Because <laughs> the one place that people who are suffering can come and, you know, we have a song, I'm going to lay down my burdens. You know, the place that you bring the pain of the week uh, of life is the black church. And so suffering is a theme that I'm sure he resonated with and oppression, you know, he came out of, uh, you know, Nazism where he saw people were really being killed because of just their ethnic identity. Um, so I think at the, you know, the bottom line of all, all faiths is where can we find that we can stand together? Where do we connect? Where do we touch it and agree as we say in the spirit at the heart? And I think that's what would have been attractive to Bonhoeffer, but I also think that's what would have been attractive to those with whom he shared the pews. Mm. Mm. That's something to sit with. Well, my dear sister in Christ, my esteemed colleague, uh, and my boss, because you're a governor. <laughs> Of the institution right. I serve, you vote on my my compensation package, so I always treat you with the greatest respect, uh, but mostly out of love. <laughs> now, tell us, uh, before we close out here, and thank you so much for this very rich conversation, both the personal side and your reflections on Harlem and the church and Bonhoeffer, you've added so much to the discussion. But I got to just ask you, because I know our folks listening in will be very interested. What are you up to now? And how can they find you and support the work that you're engaged in now? Thank you for asking. Well, I am doing twofold. It's legacy time for me. So I am working with Black Women in Ministry from a grant from the Lily Endowment. It's called the Real Black Women in Ministry Thrive Initiative, helping advance and place Black women uh, who want to do parish ministry with Black women senior pastors who will mentor them. So it's the first generation, 51 dynamic women, first generation of Black women nurturing, helping shape and mold and place other Black women. So I'm doing that. But I'm also the CEO of the Global Black Women's Chamber of Commerce. It's the first chamber of commerce from where you sit on the board that fo solely focuses on Black women-owned businesses. You know, we're the fastest growing sector in America, but who mentors us, who helps us to not only sustain, but scale our businesses. And they can find me at globalblackwomencc.org, globalblackwomencc.org, or they can find me on Sujay on Social, and that's S-U-J-A-Y on social dot live, Sujay on social dot live, which will connect you to all my social media. And finally, you know, I um, I'm a friend of Rob's and it's very important to me to be passionate about, uh, you know, how do we walk together uh, in the faith and in this world as we fight for the soul of America. So I'm working with you and intend to really uh, go on tour so that America hears a voice of faith, of ethics, of values. It's the Dietrich Bonhoeffer voice. It's the voice of the Black Church. It's the voice that God would want us to walk together in harmony 
My own business is charismaspeakers.com. Charisma Speakers uh, provides keynotes and coaching and consulting. Uh, we do it with pride. So, you know, the next time you have an event, whether it's virtual or in person, you need a speaker with charisma. So thank you for this opportunity to share with you. I'm excited and delighted to be with you. Well, we'll make sure that uh, all of our podcast family have all the links so folks will make it easy for you we'll put those live links in and you'll be able to find this woman i know as sue j that's my uh, we all those of us who know you uh, affectionately and in your circle of friends we know you as sue j some of the world knows you as the Honorable Ambassador Susan D. Johnson Cook. Others know you as the Reverend Doctor. Uh, take your pick, folks, how you want to know the multidimensional Susan D. Johnson Cook. She's a gift from God to all of us who know her indirectly, to millions more. She's certainly been uh, a, a trailblazer in so many ways. You'll want to get to know this lady. And just spending this time with you, Sujay, I'm renewed, I'm refreshed, I'm filled with faith, ready to conquer, ready to go on the road, so to speak, virtually with you in our soon-to-be-launched We're In This Together tour. We'll tell everybody about it a little later on. That's yeah. our secret for now. But thank you. It's just been a joy, as it always is, to have a conversation with you. You've helped us immensely, and we're just getting started on all of us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it's a pleasure. Uh, shout out to your family and to our wonderful friends uh, who, who help us and keep us undergirded, who are really the winds beneath our mm -hmm. wings that help us to keep flying. So thank you. And to you and all yours. And I'll be talking to you real soon off mic. All right. God bless.